Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Policymaking is the backbone of effective governance, playing a pivotal role in shaping the trajectory of a nation. It serves as the blueprint for addressing societal challenges, promoting economic growth and ensuring the well-being of citizens. Well-crafted policies not only address current issues, but also anticipate future challenges, contributing to the long-term success and resilience of a political system. In essence, policymaking is the linchpin that transforms political ideologies into tangible actions, fostering a harmonious and progressive society. This week marks the 10th anniversary of the founding of one of Wales's leading foremost policy institutions, the Wales Centre for Public Policy. The centre provides public service leaders and policymakers with authoritative, independent evidence that helps them tackle the economic, social and environmental challenges facing Wales. Part of what we at Hiraith try and do is shine a light on the policy work undertaken in Wales and joining us today to talk all things policy and celebrate 10 years of the Wales Centre for Public Policy are Professor Steve Martin. Steve is the Director of the Wales Centre for Public Policy and Professor of Public Policy and Management at Cardiff University, having led the centre as Director since its establishment a decade ago. Afternoon, Steve. Hi, nice to see you, Karen. We're also joined by Dan Bristow. Dan is Director of Policy and Practice for the centre, with a particular responsibility for knowledge, mobilisation and capacity building. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And finally, Amanda Hill-Dixon. Amanda is the senior fellow, uh, senior research fellow leading on tackling inequalities for the centre. Good afternoon, Amanda. Good afternoon, Kerry. Nice to meet you. And you. Thank you. Well, as I put in the introduction, and to those who listen regularly will know that policy is very much my focus for the pod. And I've worked with the centre in the past and I've always been very, very impressed. Steve, can you kick us off and just give us a little bit about the background to the centre, why it was formed and um, where it's where it's gone over the past decade? Initially, we were funded by the Welsh Government to work exclusively with ministers to help them to identify issues where they would they felt they would benefit from having access to external evidence and expertise to work alongside the civil service um, in in thinking about the policy options around those issues. So that was initially where we started, Dan and I and one other colleague, three-person team based in Cardiff University, providing a sort of gateway for ministers to expertise around the world. That was the plan. What we found was that we grew quite rapidly and now there's nearly 30 of us, so that, that's a tenfold increases it, which, which I never really anticipated. But that's happened as there's been much more demand for the work that we've been doing than I think anyone anticipated, including the then First Minister. And our role has expanded to include not just Wellman, but public services and Wales, local government, public bodies, PSPs and others. Dan, you're the current Director of Policy and Practice. Can you talk us through why good policymaking is so important for society? So, as you said in your intro, policy is the thing that connects political ambition to change in society. So it's the way in which governments think about um, how they enact cha the change that they that they either stood on in the election or that they want to achieve because political pressures have, and societal pressures have encouraged them to try and bring about change. People tend to think of it as being laws or government budgets, but actually it's much broader set of tools that government can use, you know, what government chooses to give its attention to um, ends up driving change or can do end up can end up driving change in society. So policy should be thought of as the broad range of things that governments can do to try and bring about change. And where it goes wrong, where it goes badly, that's easier to identify than when it goes well. So, I mean, a recent recent example of it of it going badly wrong was um, with uh, Liz Trust and Kwasi Kwarteng and the, the the mini budget, and and the impact was almost immediate in terms of the impact on the cost of government borrowing and the cost of household borrowing. So that was a recent, a dramatic example of it going going wrong and then in terms of things going right i mean we you know in wales we've seen the one of the ones that is always heralded as a, as a as a success in wales is the the levy on plastic 
bags. And that's driven changes in behaviours uh, in, in Wales. And actually, more broadly, Wales has a really positive story to tell on recycling rates and waste. Um, and that's because governments uh, have invested time, energy, resource in trying to trying to address that. So that's that maybe two examples. One, one, one more positive than the other in terms of policy and, and the ways in which government try and bring back change. I don't know if that was happen chance or whether you did that to butter me up, but if you mention the carrier bag levy uh, on this pod, you're definitely going to get some something free in the post now. Rich, can we arrange that, please? As we mentioned earlier, that's exactly what my uh, master's dissertation was looking at, which uh, Steve was involved with. But Amanda, before I get to go on about uh, single-use carrier bags too much, can you talk us through how the centre works now? You know, what, what are the processes for those who want to engage your services um, in terms of what you can do for them and making that kind of policy interaction? So as, as you'll probably have gathered, we're an independent research centre based at Cardiff University. And we exist to provide Welsh government and Welsh public services with accessible, timely, robust evidence and expertise to inform and support policymaking and practice in Wales. Um, we also have a team of academic researchers who study the sort of politics and practice of evidence-informed policy and work with us to um, reflect on and improve our impact. So in terms of the Welsh government and public service work, the way we work with the Welsh Government, well, the way we work with all of our partners in the public sector is that unlike a lot of sort of traditional academics and academic departments, we take a demand-led approach to all of our work, which means that it's the priorities and challenges facing policymakers and practitioners, which is a kind of key determinant of what we work on. So with the Welsh Government, we have over the last 10 years developed a process whereby the Welsh Government source and invite um, civil servants, ministers, spads from across the civil service to suggest policy challenges that we could support them on. So a long list of potential policy challenges and projects is developed, um, and that's whittled down to a short list, which we then agree and take forwards. And those projects can be across many different policy areas um, and have ranged from, you know, 20 miles per hour speed limits to informing kind of flagship policies like the anti-racist Wales Action Plan. Um, and then on our public services, with our public services work, um, obviously there's no single organisation which we could liaise with to understand their demand. So it's not as straightforward a process. So with public services, the way that we decide what to work on and understand the demand in relation to evidence um, is that we draw on kind of three key sources of insight. So we do talk directly with and read um, key documents from policymakers and practitioners in public services and local government. So, for example, the Public Service Board wellbeing plans are a key source for us. Um, we also look at the sort of evidence base in terms of understanding what evidence is available um, to mobilise in relation to key policy challenges facing um, public services. Um, and also to think about, to understand what the evidence suggests are the key policy challenges facing Wales. And then we also um, kind of draw on our own internal knowledge and insight um, based on all of our work and all of our interactions with evidence users and the evidence base and academics. Um, so we've been through that process with public services over the last six months or so at the outset of our sort of next decade. Um, and through that process, we've identified three key priority areas to focus our work on, which is uh, which are inequalities, which I lead on, community well-being and environment and net zero. That's great. I think we're going to explore those in a little while. But before we get there, um, you know, thank you for that introduction. And I, I've certainly benefited from going through that process. And I know when I was a civil servant, if we had... Um, the work you were working on and you had the support of the centre or the budget to get the support of the centre, it was certainly a plus and uh, certainly helped me out on a number of uh, policy areas. Steve, you've you've been there since the start and I read that it's been over 200 projects undertaken um, to date. What are the policies that the centre has worked on that have made the biggest impact in those 10 years, do you think? It's a great question. It's like being asked, which is your favourite child, isn't it? And I'm at risk of upsetting colleagues by not choosing projects which they, they've led. Can I give you three or four? 
because they illustrate different things about the way in which we work, I think, and, and the benefit that I think evidence brings to, to policy making. Dan, I pinched this sort of categorization from Dan, but he observed a long while ago that, that we get asked different types of question by ministers, by local government leaders and others. And sometimes those questions lead one into the other. But we, we often get asked, can you analyze for us the nature of this problem, this challenge? Is it actually a problem? What's going on? Who Who's at the sharp end of it? That sort of question. So understanding the issue. Secondly, we often then get asked, so if it is a problem in Wales, then what can I do about it? What have others done elsewhere? Sometimes we get asked, I've already decided this is what I'm going to do. What's the best way to achieve it? And sometimes we get asked, if I did this, then then what might happen? So a sort of modelling type question, looking into the future and saying, this is the likely outcome of adopting that policy in that particular way here in Wales. Uh, so just to, to give some examples of that, we did a lot of work around the impact of Brexit, as you'd expect. Big surprise to, to many of us in Wales, the way that referendum went. Not a lot of prior thought probably gone into preparing for what that would mean for Wales. We were brought in to look at things like what will be the impact of changing migration rules on the Welsh workforce, particularly the NHS workforce, but other sectors as well, which relied on skilled workers from the EU to come in. We did a lot of work on what were the impact on household incomes. We looked at impact on farming policy and on fisheries policy. So helping Welsh policymakers to access and work with people who are really expert in this area had already been thinking about it and working on it in a way in which many of us hadn't. That's that's one kind of impact. Uh, and that's that work was reflected in the Welsh Government's white paper on EU transition. Um, our work was put in there as an annex and so on. So there were a number of different ways in which we helped the civil service and ministers to think through the Welsh response to Brexit transition. A very different example, we got asked to look at youth homelessness in Wales and what could actually be done about that. And we worked with a group of Canadian experts from the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness, plus Lamai and Welsh local government. So we brought together international expertise, experience from somewhere completely different in the world, working with people who would completely understand the context and the issue here in Wales. And, and that led to a pilot, which the then housing minister introduced to look at innovative ways of addressing the youth homelessness problem. It also meant that we went to the Economic and Social Research Council and said, we think there's a big value in more academic research on this topic. They very kindly gave us some funding, which we then used to fund a study at Cambridge University on what happens to care leavers who fall into the homelessness trap and how might we address that? So a bundle of things going on there, international expertise, local knowledge and expertise, a Welsh pilot and further research to fill in the gaps in the knowledge that we found. Um, I'll give you a couple more if there's time. Uh, free childcare. Welsh Government was working on a free childcare offer many years ago, asked us to model the impact of that on poverty rates and on parental likelihood of returning to work, particularly mothers. And the scheme that they'd devised, we modelled the impact of that with experts in a consultancy in London, Frontier Economics, wasn't it, Dan? And what they found was, which we then reported back to a slightly perplexed then First Minister, that narrows it down to two, well, it was the previous one, that the, the scheme that the Welsh Government had in mind was going to be difficult for parents to actually return to work because it was only providing cover during school term times and most jobs don't stop in school holidays. And secondly, it was going to likely have an impact on people's benefits. So what will be happening is Welsh Government would be subsidising free childcare. UK Government would then be saving on its benefits bill, which wasn't really what, what any of us, including Welsh Government, had in mind. So that was, some, that was an impact where we said this probably isn't quite the right way to tackle this particular policy. And there was a bit of a rethink and a different kind of offer made. And then finally, I... I'm very proud of the work that we've done on loneliness and social isolation, particularly lucky that we started that before the pandemic. So it became a huge issue during the pandemic. It was something that we were already working on. So the stars aligned for us. 
a bit there. But we started by analysing the nature of the problem. It's it's a problem for all sorts of public services, but it's not anybody's primary responsibility to tackle loneliness. So we brought together the evidence on who's lonely in Wales, and that produced some sort of counterintuitive findings. It wasn't just older people living alone. Probably the loneliest cohort in Wales are, are groups of young people, actually. Then we started to work with third sector, with Welsh government, with local authorities, with something called the What Works Centre for Wellbeing and others, and some senior experts in academia on loneliness. And we've developed then a whole programme of work on how do you tackle this question of loneliness and social isolation? Do, can you use digital tools? Is it about activating the community and local initiatives? The answer's yes and yes. And then what can we learn more generally about community wellbeing and supporting communities to, to be able to look after themselves more effectively? And that's what's then led into the work that Amanda referred to, which we're now doing around community wellbeing. I think we're going to come into that. And that's really interesting that with a couple of organisations I work with, with a different hat on that. Addressing loneliness, I think, has benefited from some of the work of the, the centre. It's certainly something we put in a lot of our kind of plans and strategies. But Dan, what I want to do now, Steve has given us through um, a brief summary of the all that work over the past 10 years. But we're looking to the future now. And, um, you know, this week is that celebration of the public of the public policy centre at 10. Can you talk us through what, how you're celebrating? You've got a publication which is coming out later this week, haven't you? That's right. Yeah, we thought, um, you know, reaching double digits, we should mark the occasion. And so we put together a publication that partly is about um, thanking our funders and our collaborators, but then to emphasise really that we're keen to play our part in facing the challenges um, that, that society currently faces in Wales. We know we do our best work when we have good quality collaboration with partners that means that we are supporting them to achieve positive change in the world. So we strongly believe that decisions based on evidence are better decisions. And we know that the evidence doesn't speak for itself. So it needs to be considered alongside the local environment, what local people want, the politics of the situation, and we see our role as bringing together those collaborating partners, bringing the evidence and expertise in particular into that conversation and working together to think about what might be done in light of this. And so we wanted to use the publication partly as a way of saying, this is how we want to work. And these are the issues that we see, not because we've sat in Cardiff University by ourselves pontificating on the kinds of things that are, are facing the world, but based, as Amanda said earlier, on the documents that people are producing around their priorities, the conversations that we're already having, and the fact that we've been around for 10 years and, and have a sense of what's happening in Wales by virtue of the relationships and networks that we, we built over that time. And we wanted to emphasise the fact that the work that we do, we see it very much as based on kind of those relationships, building relationships where we don't have them, or using the relationships that we do, because... As people will know from their own personal lives, you're more likely to listen to someone that you trust. You're, and whether that's an institution or an individual, if you trust someone, you're more likely to take on board what they're saying about how you might behave and how you might behave differently. And the same is true for governments, because governments and, and any organisation is, you know, at its heart, it's the people, right? So... We know we need those good quality relationships um, uh, in order to be able to collaborate effectively with partners. And so what we're trying to do with the, with the publication is say, this is how we see the world. Please come and work with us. And we've identified the three priority areas that, that Amanda has, has highlighted. And actually, those three areas, tackling inequalities, addressing environmental and climactic change challenges, uh, so environment and net zero, we call that one, and community well-being, which has been increasingly focused on community mobilisation and how do you partner with communities. We see those as being, um, you know, the things where we, we think we can add value. And those things obviously interact with each other, right? So if you want to do something about uh, tackling, tackling climate change, um, you, it's not something governments can do by themselves, local government, national government. Um, you know, you need to work with local communities. 
And you need to do that in a way that's cognizant of the fact that they are facing fundamental challenges driven by cost of living and other pressures. So we're trying to think about how we draw, draw, the, draw those things together more. No, that's great. And th those three uh, areas, which both Amanda and yourself have identified, they're, they're really my policy drivers. So I'm really looking forward to hearing this bit now. Amanda, are you able to talk us through the areas that you've got responsibility for as you look at those kind of priorities over the next 18 months and further forward? I think you mentioned tackling inequalities was one of yours. Yeah, sure. So that's right. I lead our work um, on tackling inequalities for Welsh Government and public services. In that work, we take quite a broad concept of inequalities to include poverty and sort of material hardship, which obviously has been a, quite an acute and persistent and growing policy challenge in Wales with, as you're probably familiar, sort of around one in three children experiencing poverty, relative income poverty in Wales. And, and that's been persistent for, for some time. So there's the whole, the kind of poverty dimension to it, um, the sort of social and cultural dimensions that are connected to that. Um, but then also we really recognise that there's a, a strong kind of place-based dimension to poverty. You know, as soon as you start inequality, as soon as you start travelling around Wales, you immediately see the place-based inequalities that exist across the country. And then also in our work, we recognise and often work on systemic inequalities in the sense of the protected characteristics that individuals or households might have that make it often more likely that they will experience different forms of inequality and poverty. So be it in terms of kind of race and ethnicity, disability, gender. So our work touches upon those kind of diverse and varied forms of inequality. In recent years, since I've been at the centre, some of the key pieces of work we've done for the Welsh Government have been multidimensional evidence review to inform the anti-racist Wales Action Plan. So that covered sort of five policy areas, health, education, criminal justice, leadership, and one other that I can't quite remember. And so that's that's kind of directly informed the, the action plan and the, the policy as it's been developed and now, now is being implemented. And then also a big piece of work to um, conduct an international ev evidence review of kind of what works to tackle poverty across 12 different dimensions and drawing on kind of existing and new lived experience evidence to create a piece of work that could inform the refreshed child poverty strategy, which has just been consulted on and, um, and finalised, I think. Yeah, we also support the Welsh Government on other kind of inequalities related policy challenges and projects such as um, diversity and public appointments, free school meals and more. In terms of our work with public services, we've been going through a process over the last six months to understand what are the key inequalities challenges facing local government and public services in Wales and we we've identified kind of a handful of potential projects which we may take forwards the one that's most advanced at the moment is related to poverty stigma one of the key insights that we gained from the lived experience evidence and input was around kind of consistent experiences of stigma that people who are experiencing poverty often face and that's that's kind of a form of suffering in its own right, but it also affects and limits people's ability and willingness to seek support or um, participate in their communities. Partly as a result of that work, the new Welsh Government Child Poverty Strategy now acknowledges the importance of kind of tackling stigma through its work and public services work as key to tackling poverty. And we're now running a programme of work for public services to support them to better understand and tackle poverty stigma. So that's kind of a bit of a summary of where we are with our inequalities work at the moment. Um, and I think Dan's probably best place to tell you where we are with our community wellbeing and environment and net zero work. Yeah, absolutely. And these are two areas that, that are led led on by um, colleagues of ours, but I will I will attempt to uh, give you an overview of, of their work. Where I start is with the, the, the environment and net zero work. We've a few years ago now became interested in the idea of the intersection between tackling climate change, but uh, doing that alongside trying to address inequalities. Um, so how do you tackle climate change and bring about the structural changes that we need in society while not further deepening the inequalities that we already see? And how do you do that in a way that 
you know, you're using your economic growth and development agenda in order to meet those dual aims at the same time and, and started to talk about a just transition, which is then led to a series of pieces of work that we've done looking at what is a just transition, how have other countries used that concept and operationalised that concept, how can in Wales, how can we use the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act as a way of pursuing a just transition in Wales, but then also looking at aspects of the skills agenda as well. So what kinds of skills are needed for the future? How do you support people to transition from, from work and from jobs that are likely to need to change or, or may even disappear and to develop the skills that they might need for the jobs that we are likely to need in the future as we see the structural changes that we need? A lot of our work over the last year, I'd say, has been about supporting the group that James Davidson is chairing on behalf of the Welsh Government. The Welsh Government, as part of the cooperation agreement with Plaid, have set up a group, a challenge group, they're calling it, to see what could be done to accelerate efforts to decarbonise. And so we've been working with that group to try and bring together the evidence base to support some of the discussions they've been having, both within the group, but then with partners and other stakeholders within Wales about what could be done, what can be done within Welsh, within Wales and by the Welsh Government in particular to accelerate uh, efforts to decarbonisation. That's where I certainly see um, an intersection between the inequalities work, the environment and net zero work, but then also our communities work, because one of the things that comes through really strongly if you engage with any of the evidence around climate change is that we actually all need to be pulling in the same direction. One of the things that struck me really early on from participating in an early group conversation was someone was reflecting that there's quite a kind of groundswell of, enthusiasm is not the quite, word, quite the right word, but I guess and in a lot there's motivation within the population to try and do something to tackle climate change. And there's a sense of urgency, but not a sense of agency. So you have lots of people who would be really keen to try and do something. They just don't know what that thing is. Um, and, and kind of small scale, small scale, but important efforts like recycling feel like they're not commensurate to the challenges that we face. And yet, you know, trying to do something about the energy efficiency of your house or trying to change your travel behaviours or trying to eat differently. You're kind of left as an individual to try and grapple with that yourself. So I see the kind of one of the challenges that government's got in terms of, and it's not just Welsh government, but governments writ large have got in terms of trying to tackle climate change. It's how do you tap into that? How do you unleash that kind of desire to, to kind of help and, and make a change? And in the community wellbeing work that we've done, that's one of the areas that we've been working on most recently is looking at what can we learn from the pandemic? There was a kind of a, a groundswell of community activism uh, through the pandemic to try and support people were supporting each other in a way that we hadn't seen prior to the pandemic and, and in the same kind of scale. What can we learn from that? How did that, how did that come about? And how do we hold on to that? How do we hold on to that sense of collective endeavour and we're coming to the end now of a of a review of academic evidence experience during the pandemic experience from the third sector who were at the kind of front end of that that experience during the pandemic how do we kind of crystallize that and then share that with decision makers of if you're interested in doing this which i think a lot of people are how do you do it well um, and how do you not fall into traps that um, that are easily fallen into in terms of it being tokenistic or excluding some communities, uh, not necessarily intentionally, but by design, you kind of you you kind of rule out certain communities participating. But that particular piece of work has built on a on a suite of projects, some of which Steve mentioned earlier, which started in a place of loneliness and social isolation. And as there's been a series of pieces of work that built on each other, and this laces piece is, as I say, particularly around community mobilisation. I think there's a lot there for those of us who are still working public policy and have got personal and professional interest in this to to watch out for not just these immediate um, work pieces of work you're undertaking, but what you're looking to over the next two, three, four years going forward. And I'm sure the pod, as things come out, will be interested in perhaps picking up and focusing on some of those but i want to i want to turn now to where what the kind of wales based policy field is like and uh in the last few months i don't know if anyone's been watching the covid inquiry 
you know, what they're looking at was an incredibly difficult pressurised period of governance and policy. But it has highlighted a number of weaknesses, perhaps at both the elected members' level of knowledge and experience and at policy development levels. I think it was highlighted the science capabilities of civil servants in Whitehall in a recent um, session with Chris Whitty, I think it was. Wales, you know, it, it's not always done by trained experts in these kind of policy areas. Steve, where, where would you say our policy-making capacities are in Wales? Are we generally quite robust or is there more we could do? Can the answer be both? Um, <laughs> I, I think patchy might be a fair answer. Um, that seems to apply to much of the public policy landscape in Wales. There are there are things we do really well and there are things that we don't do so well and could improve on. In some senses, I think the role that we have shows the lack of time and headspace which the civil service and policy offices in local government and elsewhere actually have these days to engage with the evidence base. So part of what we're trying to do is to bridge that gap between the very different worlds of policy making on the one hand and academic research on the other, which operate at completely different timescales, have different ways of thinking, often even have different kind of languages to some of the stuff that my academic colleagues write behind journal paywalls, can't be accessed if, if you're interested in reading it as a civil servant. And if you did access it, it probably wouldn't be speaking to the, the immediate challenges that you have. So so I do think there's there's an issue about the disaggregation of the policy system and, and the need to bring it together through people like us who call ourselves evidence intermediaries, I suppose, and try and make those, those connections. We're also finding that for all of Wales's benefits around being a small country with a fairly close-knit policy community, and they're very real. I mean, I've worked with Whitehall departments, which feel very, very different to, to the kind of policy landscape we have here. But, but often we're still working in silos within local and national government, central government. Uh, we still got people who are tasked with looking at a challenge through the perspective of one policy area, even though we know that often all of these things are, are interconnected and cross-cutting. So I think there's a lot more that we could still do to join up policy making, but, but we've been talking about that for decades and it's not an easy thing to do, but, but it requires thinking about the training that people have, the experience that people have, whether they can move more easily between, say, Welsh government and local government, the health service and the other, other sectors, whether there's scope for people moving more easily between the worlds of research and policy making and practice. All of those things are, are not unique to Wales, but they're all areas which I think we need to continue to work at. And it becomes really difficult in an environment where there's no money and, and we've got massive challenges on our hands and a sense of kind of ongoing multifaceted policy crises. So, so I'm not naive about it, but I think there are things that we could we could continue to work at. So your question, Kerry, about, you know, do people have the right skills? Do we have the right skills within government? You know, your, your, the skills that you need will change depending on the challenge you face. The trick is to know how to bring in the right people at the right time and how to listen to them. I mean, that's, I think, the other thing that's coming through about from the COVID inquiry is um, how, when do you when do you listen to and how do you listen to experts and how do you engage with experts? And that really is a skill, you know, that, that kind of understanding of, OK, as a politician, what's my role? I'm not going to be an expert on stuff, but how do I collaborate with experts so that I can make the best possible judgment that is an, ultimately a political judgment? And I think some of that, you know, the COVID inquiries is flagging uh, as an area of, or at least if you, you know, some it was lacking somewhat, shall we say. What I've seen since I've started working in policy in Wales is that we can sometimes be really good at producing policies that are really um, kind of supported and have a lot of, engagement with um so for example the well-being of future generations act you know is um there's a lot of support for it in wales and internationally it's kind of held up as a, a really good example of ambitious and visionary policy making but then then there's also the key question of sort of implementation capacity and capability um and so whether the policies that have been designed and created can actually create the change on the ground that they 
that they aspire to create that's a key part of the equation um and i think something that um that is something that we we can work on in wales as in most countries and governments yeah no i, I think you're touching on points that we've we've regularly feature in the podcast actually but it's about that kind of delivery capacity and you all mentioned a lot of the buzzwords which we talk around around silos upskilling things like that and um I think that's something I want to explore a little bit because, Steve, you and I first met um, when I did the Masters of Public Administration course at Cardiff University about, uh, I graduated a decade ago as well, actually. Um, so I thought that was a fantastic initiative and it what, everything behind that was around upskilling Welsh policymakers across the, the, the public sector and wider a field and it served me incredibly well over the past decade working inside government and with various policy bodies outside i'm not sure whether that scheme is still going i don't think that particular course is but do you think there's that need for uh, our education establishments to you know be providing such courses both for policymakers but i'm going to come on to something around our elected members as well yeah, it's kind of you to name check the Master of Public Administration. I I really enjoyed um, teaching. It's not, almost not the right word, leading that. I don't know what your experience was, but I always felt the most valuable thing was that I or one of my academic colleagues would provide a sort of starter for 10, a bit of a framework for thinking about an issue, maybe some evidence about how it's being approached. But the real learning came from you and the others that, around the table in talking to each other from, from different parts of the Welsh Public Service. And it was an education for me, which has stood me in good stead too. Um, so that says to me that there certainly is a role for those kind of structured academic, for want of a better word, but very applied and policy-oriented courses. And of course, I'd like to see Welsh universities and other universities doing much more of that. And perhaps worrying a little bit less about have we got 25 people who, who can somehow scrape together the fees to come on this course and see it as a bit of our, our kind of civic mission from within higher education. That, that would be fantastic. Though I, I know that if our VC was listening, she'd be saying, yeah, but we can't just provide courses for nothing. So yes, yes. And I think there are a whole load of other ways of providing those kind of interactions which I think were the, the real value in that MPA course and other post-experience courses that the university runs. And there's been a very successful course in this building where I am now in recent months called Infuse, run by some of our colleagues in, in Erlab. So we're still doing those sorts of things. But, but I think creating space where people can come together and talk in an honest and open and safe sort of way about the policy challenges they're facing it is something which we can do outside of the academic classroom, as it were. A lot of the expert roundtables that we run are about bringing together academic expertise and evidence, policymakers, practitioners in local government, sometimes, as Amanda said, people with lived experience of the issue, and, and really kind of trying to tease out what is the issue, what's worked elsewhere, what could work here in Wales, what do we have the delivery capacity for? So we we do that sort of thing. IWA does some of that. Bevan do it too. There, there are some forums in which that happens, but I don't think there are as many here in Wales as you'd have, for example, if you went to London, where there are think tanks on every other street corner. So, so there is much more that we could do to build up that infrastructure. And I think you, your podcast is part of that, of course, as well. Some of this has gone virtual rather than physical, and that that's really... Good. The other thing that I think we could do is try and create much more reflective practice and practitioners. So we try and reflect all the time on what we're doing. What did we get right? What did we not get right? What do we learn for the next piece of work that we do? And that part of that compression of time and headspace that Dan and I are both talking about, I, I think means sometimes there isn't time for policymakers to mentor one another in that way and to take a a little breath and think so what's gone right about this policy and, and, and what do, what hasn't and what what do we take forward so so learning on the job I think is as valuable as sitting in a classroom 
with a Cardiff University professor, but that's constantly being squeezed out by the day job. And we, we need to somehow try and make that part of the day job. No, I think you've exemplified a lot of what I thought of that particular course. It was sitting with people from across the Welsh public sector, fire service, police, health, wider field was really, really good. And I was also fortunate enough to go to a, a course recently within the health service. And there were three distinct parts of the health service who were only in this particular course speaking to each other for the first time. And you could see the benefits of breaking out of that day job area and seeing how others you're supposed to work with work. So I think there's a lot lot in that and how we can do it. But it's like you said, it's that time away from the day job. I am coming to the end, but Dan, Amanda, on that aspect about how we upskill our policy workforce and address some of the issues which has come out of the COVID inquiry, which perhaps we were aware of before, have you got any other thoughts I'm just going to pick up on something Amanda said about implementation, because it is something that I'm too obsessed with and interested in. But one of the things that came through from the COVID inquiry is who gets listened to. I've seen sometimes policymakers uh, at all levels be unfocused in the way in which that they do that. So how do you use your stakeholder engagement or your co-productive activities in order to build the picture that you need to do, gather the intelligence you need to gather in order to make a better policy than the one you would if you just were sat in the Bay or sat in Westminster and designing it yourselves when there's all sorts of biases that come through because you only ever see part of the world. I think some tendency to the implementation um, in the policy design process and thinking about who is involved and how you bring in voices that aren't directly involved um, is something that I think you know could do with a bit more attention, actually, in terms of the skill set available to policymakers. Amanda, I don't know if you want to mention that. I have got a part of that is something, uh, one of the key aspects in policy uh, for me is the evaluation aspect of it and how that's used, whether it's built in, and then how the policies, a lot of what you've talked about, how they're monitored going forward and addressed and changed. Uh, could talk about the single-use carrier bag charge and how Wales is still the same charge what it was when we introduced it. And the other parts of the UK are different now. And you know, I'm wondering on the evaluation, but have you got any aspects on that side of things you'd like to contribute? On the question of kind of, and I'll, so I'll come back to that one if that's okay, and try and weave them all together. But I think um, kind of connected to what Dan was saying about Kind of implementation and who who you listen to and how we listen to different voices um and how we use that to improve kind of policy making capacity i think there's something about creating processes and infrastructures that enable policy to understand uh, other people's experiences from across you know both in terms of service users and public service deliverers and so i've always been a fan of the system that they have in some countries, I think in Iceland, where policymakers and officials spend some time working directly in the public services that their decisions affect. So, you know, a year in working in a school or working in a hospital. And I think um, I think that really can help decision makers to understand the experiences of the people who both kind of the professionals and the service users who their decisions will affect. And then I think that I wanted to kind of follow up on the question you asked Dan at the very beginning about kind of why why is policy important and what is policy and i think that we're in a position today in wales and the uk and kind of probably across the world where we need where we actually kind of need to continue to make the case that government policy and public services and the public sector is is an entity that can create the change we want to see in society and that it is a sort of locus of change because you know, there are some that would argue that that's not where change can come from. And of course, change can come from other sectors as well and other entities in society. But I do think it's important to defend the principle that the public sector and governments are a key way in which we as societies and communities writ large can create change. And that links back to your evaluation point, Kerry, <laughs> because in order to make that case effectively, we need to actually demonstrate that government policies, interventions, programmes do create the change. But of course, the thing with evaluations are that they're often very hard to do really well. You know, you can't always put 
a randomized control trial around every policy because sometimes it's just not ethical or it's too expensive and generally evaluations are very very resource intensive so we can't afford to put them in place in you know in all of the instances that we'd want to so I completely agree that it's really really important for all the reasons I've said but that there are key challenges there that we need to work through. Yeah, and no, I think it's fair to say it's about getting the balance and the the compromises for these things. But uh, I know in some areas I've worked in, I would have liked the predecessor schemes to have had a good evaluation to set you on a good stance. So I do want to ask you a final kind of policy landscape in Wales question. We've talked through better training for policymakers, uh, awareness. Uh, we've also mentioned silos. That's a big thing for me, but uh, we need a far more holistic approach across government departments and across the wider public sector but can each of you perhaps just give me uh, in a short snappy christmas wish list kind of way one key aspect to improve our policy making landscape in wales may be it's a really great question so what do policymakers want for christmas um well some obvious things i guess if santa has 900 million pounds that would be great for wales uh, so more money if, if we're kind of wishing for a moment. More realistically, I, I think an uneventful 2024, which again won't happen, but it would be really great if we don't have a pandemic or a major kind of event like Brexit. We're going to have a general election, I guess, but we kind of all think we know what's going to happen there. So some time to deal with the longer term issues, which don't change in spite of all of these other events, to quote a former prime minister, would be really good and what will be top of my list there is to think about the way in which we get out of this spiral where in 20 years time all public spending will have to be devoted to healthcare because of the aging of the population and there won't be anything left for anything we just can't go on like that and that requires some really courageous and imaginative thinking public engagement and and a real effort to think about how do we improve the health of the nation so that we don't just spend all of our time treating those of us who feel fall ill or, or for a variety of reasons can't engage in mainstream society. At some point, we're going to have to deal with that issue. So maybe 2024 would be a good time to start thinking about it. Yeah, and no, that's a really interesting, interesting one. Dan, can you top Steve's wish list? No, I want Steve's wish list to come true. <laughs> the, one that, uh, the one that immediately came into my mind was that I get frustrated by, and I know I'm only adding my name to an already very long list, I get frustrated by the kind of cluttered landscape in Wales, just the number of regional collaborations that are on various footings, either statutory footings or driven by funding or you know another policy initiative that creates another structure. But what we've got is lots and lots and lots of multi-agency partnerships and they have overlapping remits and people spend a disproportionate amount of their time going to these these things and they're all well-intentioned and nobody wants to grasp the nettle and do something about it and clear out some of that because I think it does some of it does need to be cleared out I don't think anybody would um, thank me for putting that on their agenda to be honest there's just a lack of will i think to do what what's seen as very difficult very controversial and nobody has an easy answer to it for those who listen to the pod what you just um expressed is what comes out quite regularly the pod we published today which was uh us talking summarizing the autumn political updates very much again looking at that kind of approach to governance engagement rationalization in wales so you know i think it's a common theme but Amanda, you get the final word. What what would you do to imp improve our kind of policy landscape? Um, yeah, I also hope that Steve's wish list comes true. But kind of, if if I'm answering the question on the basis of what is within the control of um, sort of the Welsh public sector, like Dan's suggestion, there are there are certain things that come up in the key recommendations of almost every report we write and like almost every project project we work on and as well as effective um collaboration and partnership working coming up it coming up as a solution to almost every policy challenge another thing that comes up in almost every project is data 
and kind of you can envisage a world in which the Welsh public sector much more effectively collects and shares data and information to enable the whole public sector to, to effectively understand the issues we're trying to improve and address and, and helps us to understand how far our efforts are achieving those intended outcomes and, and to ultimately improve the delivery of public services and interventions and policies. And I think that I think there is like real potential for change there. You know, we see it in the private sector, the private sector much more effectively collects, uses, shares information and data to their own ends. And I think there's huge scope for government, including in Wales, to to, to, to kind of make progress on that front. Um, and I think that that would then set us up for actually in the future more effectively using AI and large language models to use that data to then kind of generate enhanced insights and action. Um, so that would be on my wish list. No, that's great. And I did have a question on AI, but sadly we're out of time. So I think AI could be a, a bit of a game changer in a lot of ways, but um, we have run out of time. So I do thank you all for joining us today. We always ask guests because people I'm sure are interested in your work and might want to get in touch with you. So we ask you if you can by a social media means. Steve, is there a way for people to contact you if they want to hear more? Yeah, probably the best way is through our website, Old Fashioned. But we're we're on Twitter as well. But everything that we produce is freely available on our website and you can get in touch with, with one of us or Liz, our comms officer. Dan, have you got a personal, if people want to engage with you or see what you're working on, how can they contact you? I'm on X, formerly Twitter, um, and at DW Bristow, uh, if people want to track me down. But similarly, my my contact details are on the website if people want to find me. And Amanda, I'm sure you're on the website as well, but if people wanted to see your kind of wider thoughts and musings on social media, is there a way? I'm also on X and LinkedIn at Amanda Hildickson. We shall. Hopefully you'll pick up a few followers to see what you're talking about. But can I once again thank you all for joining us this afternoon. It is hugely appreciated. And thank you for the work you've done over the past 10 years. You know, it's the hidden stuff which doesn't really get looked at. But as a civil servant for a long time, it helped me out. And uh, the very best for the next 10 years and Hopefully, when we next do this, the policy landscape will be quite different. Thanks again. Thanks, Gary. It's been fun. Thank you. Thanks very much for having us. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then you can find more from Hiraith on the various podcast apps. We are on all the socials at Hiraith Pod. And if you want to support us with your wallet as well as your ears, you can do so from just £3 a month at patreon.com slash Hiraith Pod. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.